and welcome to another episode of the Bluish Podcast. It's been about two weeks since I've released an episode. Um, a lot has happened that has kind of prevented me from doing anything. I got really sick and I lost my voice. Um, part part of it is because I was sick and the other part is because I was yelling at a bunch of 14-year-old boys um, for two days straight. Um, so that was not fun, and so, you know, when you don't have a voice, you can't record a podcast, and you could probably hear in my voice that I'm still a little bit sick. Um, the other thing is that I was doing a lot of activism things, and, um, I was doing more activism stuff than I normally would because I was planning for the world's first National Period Day, and so, you know, that, that took a lot of extra time out for me, and, you know, also going through the college process, really trying to finalize my Common App essay, you know, my supplements, financial aid stuff, because my family is a mess, um, and I will get into all of the details of why I was gone, and just, you know, what I want to talk about for today in a minute, but I just wanted to kind of give a little disclaimer as to why I've been gone for the past couple weeks, but I'm really excited to be back, and so I hope that you enjoy today's episode. So, as I mentioned before, I was planning for the world's first National Period Day, and I wanted to just talk a little bit about that, and about menstrual equity in general, and why this day was so important. So, this year's National Period Day took place on Saturday, October 19th, um, and I can't really speak for what happened outside of the U.S., but in the country, there were rallies in all 50 states. I think there were a total of 55 rallies, give or take a few. Um, And so, obviously, I was one of the co-organizers for the New York City rally. And it was was so amazing. Um, We had it on the steps of City Hall. And there were some, you know, like, last-minute changes and complications, you know, in terms of permits and not being able to have any sound amplification because it was on the steps of City Hall. And I think the reasoning was a little bit, you know, bullshit because they were having an open house this this weekend was um open house and so they were doing an open house of City Hall and people were going in and out of City Hall and the whole thing about amplified sound is like, you know, you can't distract people while they're in their offices or whatever goes on at City Hall. But I mean I figure if you have people coming in and out of City Hall, that's you know, a distraction enough. But that's neither here nor there. I will just say I don't think that the people who work at City Hall particularly care about menstrual equity and ending period poverty. So, you know, I don't I don't think they're really worried about, you know, what's in the best interests of um, ralliers and protesters. So, um, on the subject of menstrual equity and period poverty as a whole, you know, I, for me personally, my, my thing, <laughs> my reason for being a part of this movement um, well, my reasons. Um, one is I really want to push forth the narrative that um, not all menstruators are women and not all women menstruate. Um, you know, because these limitations on um, period products and access to period products were placed, you know, during a time where everybody kind of just accepted gender as a binary, you are either a man or a woman and you're either a cisgender man or a cisgender woman, and, you know, trans people weren't really taken into account. Um, So, for a while, this was a women's issue, 
in the same way that abortion is still seen as a women's issue, even though trans and non-binary people need access to abortions just as much as cisgender women do. Um, So I'm trying to, along with many other people, kind of get that label off and stop calling it a women's issue. And, you know, even if it was only cisgender women who who we had to worry about here, it, it still shouldn't be a women's issue only because everybody in the world is affected by periods. Without periods, none of us would be born because you need a period. For the most part, there are some exceptions. Um, like, medically speaking, there are some exceptions. But for the most part, your average person with female reproductive organs has to have a period in order for that person to give birth. Periods equal life. And if we want to, you know, reproduce and keep the human race alive, we need periods. So it's not just a women's issue. It's not just a menstruator's issue. It is an everyone issue. It is a people issue because without periods, we would not be here today. Um, so that's number one. Number two, um, when, when, I think of, when I think of access to period products, I don't really think of much because period products are not very accessible. Um, for example, I'll, I'll give an example um, of school because I go to high school. That's my environment. Um, we do have, as far as I know, one working dispenser on our floor. It might be the only working dispenser in our building, and it is free but the products are terrible quality. I've only ever used a pad from the dispenser because there's no way that I'm putting a tampon from a free period product dispenser inside myself. Like, I would... That just sounds so painful and uncomfortable. Um, but, um, so the pad feels like a diaper. It's so thick. It, it doesn't have wings. It's, it, it's very easy to, like, you know, scrunch it up in your underwear and, you know, that kind of defeats the purpose of it because it's supposed to cover your underwear so you don't bleed all over yourself. Um, and so one of the things is that if you're going to have free products, they still have to be good quality. You know, just because someone needs something for free, you know, that doesn't mean that they deserve a poor quality version of that product. And again, it's not like if we say, hey, there are a select few people who need these products for free that we're implying that every single person who gets their period is going to get these products for free. Like, no, if you can afford to pay for these products, you're still expected to pay for them. No one is saying that it should be a free-for-all. But that being said, if we're going to have the government paying for Viagra for the military, then you should have the government paying for period products because Viagra is not an essential. It is a non-essential. Period products are essential because otherwise you will bleed all over yourself. Like, having a limp dick must, must suck, but it doesn't suck any worse than a period. And periods are essential, like I said before, to, you know, life on Earth, um, continuing the human race. Um, you can still, you know, get somebody pregnant if you have ED. Um, and also, it's just... Viagra is just not an essential. It is a luxury far more than period products are. Um, which brings me to my next point, which is um, putting a luxury tax on um, menstrual products. So in 35 states in the U.S., we have what is known as the tampon tax. That is an all-encompassing term, though. Basically, all period products 
have a luxury tax on them. Um, toilet paper does not. Like I said, Viagra does not. Um, yet, for some reason, other items that are specifically you know, marketed toward women um, and just toward people who aren't cisgender men, um, they're seen as luxuries. And so we, we, love, we love sexism here. Um, it's really gross. And um, it, it, fo- it, it just perpetuates period poverty. One in four people have to choose between food and buying menstrual products in this country. Stats are even worse outside of this country, um, especially when you think about um, culture. In a lot of places, it's seen as even more shameful to be on your period. Um, I know in some religions, you're not supposed to pray while you're on your period because you're seen as like too unholy to do so. Um, people are often sent home from school if they leak through their clothing. So there, when you pair lack of access with extreme stigma, people's lives are ruined. And that's what, that's what we're doing, you know. We, we create an environment where periods are seen as gross and not as normal as any other bodily function. Um, and then we also take away these products or we make these products inaccessible in one way or another. So it's, it becomes a more public thing because then you're bleeding through your clothes, people are seeing it, and people are automatically thinking that's gross even though period blood is the most sterile blood in the human body, or rather that comes out of the human body. You know, nobody really wants to talk about that. Um, so that, that's why National Period Day is important and why it should be a prime issue internationally. You know, along with abortion and, and everything, everything that falls under the reproductive health umbrella, um, People deserve to be healthy in every way possible, and people deserve comfort, and people deserve to be proud of the bodies that they have, because periods are fucking incredible. Like I said, we wouldn't be here without periods. So, you know, to to make people feel ashamed of something that they cannot control, and something that they might not want to control, and, you know, something that is incredibly painful for some and, you know, if you have, um, for example, endometriosis can be life-threatening. Um, so, you know, all this pain, all this suffering, all this stigma that we have to go through, it's, it's not a luxury, but it is something that we should be proud of as menstruators. Um, and so that's why we need National Period Day. That's why we need menstrual equity. That's why we need to end period poverty. Um, so I just, I just wanted to touch on that because I think that it's extremely important and I think that, um, you know, while abortion is extremely, extremely important, because of the prevalence of that issue, it, it often overshadows the other more nuanced aspects of reproductive health issues. Um, so I hope that I was able to kind of shed light on that for some of you um, who might not really understand the importance of it. And, you know, as um, future period movement events come up, I hope that this kind of moves you to, to join in.
right, now I want to talk about the college process. Well, not necessarily the college process, but kind of like post-secondary education as a whole and why it is inherently elitist and gross and disgusting and exclusionary, blah, blah, blah. Um, As you can see, I hate a lot of American infrastructure. Um, So I'm currently going through the college process. Things are going okay for me, um, but then you get to financial aid. And if your family is as messy as mine, then the financial aid process is literal garbage. I filled out the FAFSA. <laughs> I filled out the FAFSA. I filled out the CSS profile. Um, my IDOC stuff is fine. Um, if you don't know what those words mean, good, I, you shouldn't have to because it's, it's stressful. Basically, it's all financial aid terms. Um, and so... I'm not going to go into this because this is a public podcast and, like, I'm not really trying to, like, put all that out there, but basically my father is not in my life. Um, he's a terrible person. When I say he's a crackhead, I'm not talking about, like, oh, you know, like, uh-huh, I do something quirky and now I'm a crackhead. No, like, he's, like, a full-on addict and alcoholic. Um, I literally do not know where he is. I don't know, like, I don't know where he is. Nobody knows where he is. So clearly he cannot fill out non-custodial parent forms for the financial aid process, which means that I have to fill out the lovely non-custodial parent waiver. And what that means is that you are saying, hey, my non-custodial parent is nowhere to be found. I don't, they, they just can't fill out this form for one reason or another. And um, some colleges have individual forms in addition to the CSS fee waiver. One of the colleges that I'm applying to does. So basically you have to give them your life story and relive your trauma and um, if your college specific waiver, have your parent or your family members relive their trauma with this non-custodial parent. And it's just really terrible. Um, But I will say I understand completely why it has to be done. Basically, Here's the deal. So obviously we know about scammers and the whole like Olivia Jade situation, but that's not the only way that you can scam a college um, with your money. This is about financial aid specifically. That was about the admissions process as a whole. So when it comes to financial aid, what wealthier families have been doing is A, they are divorcing and then disowning their children legally. Obviously they still keep in contact with them, but they've been doing this so that their children can claim an independent status, which gets you a lot more financial aid than if you were to say, hey, I am a child of two wealthy married parents who can fully afford to pay for my college education. And number two, um, this one, I don't know how successful it's been, because I know if I was in this position, I'd be like, fuck no. But basically, people have been asking, you know, their lower income friends and family members to adopt their children so that their children can use them and their taxes and their financial info to apply to college and thus get more financial aid. Um, I think that's disgusting and evil, and if I had the money, I would never do that. I mean, I guess part of it is because I know what it's like to be broke as fuck, but also, even if I didn't, it's just kind of common sense and, like, you know, basic, like, just a basic moral test of, like, hey, don't do that. Um, but apparently some people just suck really bad. Um, and you know, there's all these implications about race and socioeconomic status that I have touched on before, and so I'm not really trying to get into that today. I just wanted to explain to you 
why, even though it sucks, I understand college is asking for so much verification, but it doesn't make reliving your trauma any easier. It doesn't make, you know, the act of asking your parents and family members to relive their trauma any easier. It doesn't make having to open up to other third-party individuals about your trauma any easier. Um, And so I've been struggling a lot because of this. Um, And I just, you know, college as a whole is is just kind of messy. Um, And I just... You know, I'm really, I'm really struggling to, to find the words to, to put this together, you know, coherently because there's just so much that I have to say because college and post-secondary education is such a complex topic. Um, and for me, you know, as a, as a broke student, I have many grievances, um, especially as a broke student of color. Um, one thing that I will also touch on um, that just kind of popped into my head is affirmative action And I'm going to make a not-so-gentle request for people to stop referring to affirmative action as a type of or means of reparations for descendants of slaves. Affirmative action positively impacts white women more than any other group of people. Reparations are not reparations unless they apply solely to descendants of slaves that's how it works like that's the whole point and of course I do fully support reparations in the form of infrastructure as opposed to direct payments because you can't quantify the pain and suffering that my ancestors have had to endure and that I and people like me have to endure now as a result of the lasting effects of slavery and um you know old-timey overt racism and Jim Crow and all that um But yeah, affirmative action, it's not reparations. And affirmative action, it isn't that great. You know, obviously, I would prefer a world with affirmative action in it because it makes racism on an educational basis that much harder. And I appreciate that. Um, But if you think that affirmative action is enough and that we don't need anything else, to fix educational racism in this country, you are so, so, so wrong and so naive and you have a lot of research to do and don't ask me for that research because Google is free and it's not my job to educate you on how to make racism go away because I'm living it every single day and it is a life and death thing for me. Um, so yeah, I wanted to touch on that. Something else about college well this isn't really I guess it's about it applies to college but it's not exclusive to college um school segregation obviously if you've seen any of my presence on social media you know that I am a member of Teen Take Charge I'm on their public action team um and you know I know a decent amount about school segregation I spent an entire semester doing research on it in junior year which is why I joined Teen Sick Charge but you know this this is my backstory I'm not going to go into it um but basically I found out that one of the colleges that I'm applying to and it is I guess still one of my top colleges but anyway I found out that it's like 78% white which is fucking crazy like <laughs> I've been to some pretty white schools, 78%, never, never in my life 
have I, I, ugh, I, I don't know. And one of my friends, um, who's an Asian woman, she was telling me, I don't, I don't know why I said woman. Like, she is a woman. She's an adult. Um, but she goes to the school, and she was telling me that, like, the white gay community there is, like, ridiculous. And I, I believe it. Now that I've seen these statistics, I mean, I believed before, but, you know, if I didn't believe before, I'll believe it now. And it's just very frustrating to me because, you know, those kind of statistics just kind of silently say to you, like, hey, this level of educational quote-unquote success is for white people. And it's just, ugh, it sucks. But that's why we need things like affirmative action. That's why we need more than affirmative action. And that's why people need to stop saying that affirmative action is enough and that it's reparations because it's not. Um, I, I, could, I could really, clearly, I could go on and on about that. But I just wanted to say that and talk a little bit about college and just get that off my chest and, you know, talk about the fact that people make other people, make children relive their trauma um, with no qualms because of stupid scammers because that's what they have to do because scammers are everywhere and they suck and they lack morality and a soul um, so I hope this college rant wasn't like too boring and and all that but if it was like I don't even know why you're listening to the fourth episode of this podcast because it's very clear like what I talk about um and by the way, I'm not going to do anything on the debate because, honestly, I slept through, like, two-thirds of it because um, it's really boring. Um, if the next debate warrants another podcast episode, I will I'll give you one, but I pro- probably won't. I'm just, I'm just being honest. Um, so, you know, I guess this is just going to be the outro because I don't really feel like making a separate segment because I'm already kind of closing things. Um, so I hope you enjoyed this episode. If all goes well, I will be back next week, and the week after, and the week after, and as I go through the college process, I will keep you updated. I am EDing to a school. If I get into that school, then in December, I will have a very exciting, very upbeat podcast, where for once, I don't complain about anything at all. Don't quote me on that. All right, I'll see you guys in a week.